0: Our reading today is from Matthew 14, verses 13 through 36. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place. And the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. He said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves, and he gave them to his disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of the pieces left over. And those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go out before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. It is I. Do not be afraid. Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. And when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, Oh you of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshiped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret. and when all the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought him all who were sick, and implored him that they might that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well.
1: Other than the resurrection, the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle recorded in all four Gospels. Now, even walking on the water, which I kind of think is a big deal, it's only recorded in three of the Gospels. Luke doesn't even bother to mention Jesus walking on the water. But yet, the feeding of the 5,000, other than the resurrection, which really you can't leave that out of the story, other than the resurrection, the feeding of the 5,000 is the only one of the miracles that all four of the gospel writers make sure to record and friends, it must be because there's a special significance for us to see and to understand from this story. Now, these are two of Jesus best known and most frequently cited miracles, the feeding of the 5,000 people, the over 5,000, because it notes it was 5,000 men, not including women and children feeding them with just five loaves and two fish, and then Jesus walking on the water to his disciples. These are some of the best known, the most frequently referred to miracles, but both of them beg the question that I want us to start with today, which is the question of the miraculous. Because you're going to encounter people today who are going to say, well, that's all just made up. The miraculous doesn't actually happen. Friends, the question is, what we read today, is this actually miracles or were these merely metaphors? You know, symbolic language that the authors of the Gospels wrote meant to make us aware of something else. Something symbolically to point beyond itself. So let's begin with this question. Did these things truly happen? Are these miraculous events in history, or were they simply metaphorical expressions, just a story, a myth, a morality tale, meant to convey a point to us, but these things didn't really happen? Miracles or metaphors? History or just story? Well, the plain and the straightforward reading of these, as Jeannie just straightforward read it to us, it sounds like the authors are reporting this really happened. Now, many people have gone to great lengths to try to explain away the miraculous, and they've engaged in some really impressive linguistical and hermeneutical gymnastics, bending themselves into knots to explain away the plain and simple reading of what happened here. However, friends, the bottom line is that these miracles and every single miracle account that we find in the Gospels are found in the midst of books that claim to be historical accounts, of the ministry and teaching of Jesus. These books and the stories contained within all bear the marks of historical reports, not legend or morality tale. The Gospels contain historical dates, locations, persons, and the truthfulness of those things has been validated by archaeological and historical data. So the only reason why you would even begin to doubt that these miracles being reported actually happened Is if you approach the text assuming ahead of time that the miraculous doesn't happen. The only reason why you'd try to explain it away is if you approach the text with an assumption beginning that the supernatural is not happening. And friends, why would you hold that assumption? Why would you hold that assumption? The text itself gives us no reason to think that these accounts are anything but a historical report. Moreover, the authors of all of the accounts of the Gospels and all of the miracle stories, friends, they went to their death and under great duress and persecution, holding to the claim that these were true and accurate stories, that these things really happened. The Apostle Peter he wrote in 2nd Peter chapter 1 verse 16, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Or, or the disciple John, he claimed about his writing in 1st 1 John 1:1, 1, 1, that which was from the beginning which we have heard which we have Seen with our eyes which we've looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Friends, both of these and all of the gospel writers claim that their message was not myth. It was not legend. These accounts are what they saw, what they heard, what they experienced. And these men died clinging to that claim. Moreover, these gospel accounts, including all the miracle accounts, they began circulating during the lifetime of Jesus' contemporaries. And friends, if the disciples had been making things up in the Gospels, and they started to be circulated, don't you think all of his enemies who were there and sought would have gone, that's not how it happened. In fact, the Apostle Peter, when he preached on the day of Pentecost, he delivered his great sermon, and in Acts chapter 2, verse 22, he says, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. As you yourselves know, you were there. You heard Jesus. You saw the miracles. You know what happened. Friends, it is highly unlikely that these accounts that were written and began circulating in the lifetime of Jesus' contemporaries were legendary or myth. Because otherwise, those who wanted to discredit Jesus would have stood up and gone, I was there. That's not how it happens. So the disciples had to be very careful when they wrote these accounts. This isn't legend. This isn't myth. This isn't made up. These aren't fabrications. These are factual. These aren't metaphors. These were miracles. And friends, consider the fact that if Jesus truly was who he claimed to be, the creator God himself come in human flesh, if God truly is the supernatural breaking into the natural world, wouldn't you expect some disruption of the natural order? Wouldn't you expect the God who created all things to have power that is super that is beyond natural so friends what we read in these accounts is not myth it's not metaphor it's not make believe this is the miraculous happening in history. These texts were written as historical reports. Witnesses of these events reported these events to us and went to their death, clinging to the claim that these are true and accurate historical records. The accounts were circulated within the time of those who could have disproved them. And this is exactly what we would have expected if truly God Himself had come in the flesh. So friends, the bread and the fishes were multiplied and the people did eat, and on the water Jesus did run. It all proves who Je- that Jesus is exactly who He claimed to be. Truly, you are the Son of God, as the disciples claimed at the end of this account. Now friends, while we're addressing the challenges that might be made to the very existence of the miraculous, let's address some challenges that might be made to the manuscript of these stories. You know, because like I mentioned, in this this account we have in four Gospels, and if you read all four Gospel accounts, you're going to find some slight variations. You're going to find some things that, that seem to be differences. And those who don't believe in miracles and believe these are made up go, well, that's because these stories are mere inventions. They couldn't even get their stories straight. However, friends, understand that the differences we find in the four Gospels and these four accounts do not undermine the credibility of this account. It rather underscores the credibility of the four accounts that we have of these miracles. I've mentioned to you before a man by the name of J. Warner Wallace. He's a retired cold case detective with 25 years of experience. And he wrote a book called Cold Case Christianity that I recommend to all of you. And Wallace argued about the apparent disagreements that we find in the gospel accounts. He said that the the apparent disagreements that we find are actually what convinced him, as a cold case detective, of the reliability of the gospel accounts. This is what he writes. In all of the cases I've ever worked, from simple theft and assault cases to robberies and homicides, I've yet to have a case where the witnesses of the event agreed on every single detail. It's never happened. There are many factors that contribute to one's perception of an event. Physical location, past experience, familiarity with the feature of a crime scene, a witness's physical, emotional, and psychological distinctives play a role in what they see, how they communicate the testimony after the fact. In fact, this was his conclusion, in fact... When three different witnesses tell me the exact same thing, I start to get suspicious. So for him, as a cold case detective investigating crimes, he said that the apparent discrepancies that we find actually for him underscored the reliability of the accounts. Because otherwise, if they were all four exactly same accounts, wouldn't you go, well, they all got together and they just, you know, they got their story together. No, we have four different witnesses bringing us different perceptions, and we find that what appear to be contradictions are actually complementary. It fills out the story in a way that we otherwise would not have. So friends, it's not that the story is unreliable. In fact, it, it verifies that the story is reliable. And in, what we also find in the four accounts of the loaves and fishes are undesigned coincidences. This was really cool. I discovered this as I was studying, and I want to share this with you. There are undesigned coincidences when you have multiple accounts. that It fills in. It answers questions that otherwise wouldn't make sense. For example, in Luke's Gospel report of this, he mentions that the location where this all happened was outside of in a remote area near the town of Bethsaida. So it happened outside of but near the town of Bethsaida. That's Luke's gospel. But then it explains the detail in John's gospel. You see, in John's gospel, when we have Jesus asking for help from the disciple Philip. Now, I even mentioned Philip, and some of you are going, Philip was a disciple? Because Philip is one of the lesser-known, lesser-mentioned of the twelve disciples. We hear about Peter and James and John all the time, but Philip... Yet, when Jesus was looking around at this feeding of the 5,000, he asks Philip a question in John chapter 6, verse 5. Lifting up his eyes and then seeing a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so these people may eat? All right, of all the disciples, why Philip? Why Philip? Well, because earlier in John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 44, it tells us, Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. So we find out Philip was from Bethsaida, so it's natural if they're near Bethsaida, who's he going to ask about the local fair? Philip. Well, we wouldn't have known that if we didn't have multiple accounts. All of a sudden it fills in the detail, it also fills in the detail, that you notice it says that Philip and Andrew were both from Bethsaida, and John, guess who brought the young boy with the lunch to Jesus? John tells us in John 6, 8, and 9, one of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to Jesus, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? So Andrew was also from the region of Bethsaida. He probably knew this young boy and his family. They were probably there. And he's like, oh my goodness, I haven't seen you in so long. And they were probably catching up. And all of a sudden came the issue of food. And Andrew goes, well, I was just reconnecting with this, This young man from the family that I grew up with, and and he has some food, Jesus. It all of a sudden makes sense. These undesigned coincidences, again, they casually just kind of interlock with one another. And friends, it fills out the picture, but it also confirms for us, these aren't four disparate accounts. These are four accounts of the same event. Different perspectives, different details, and they all underscore the truthfulness of what we read. Friends, what we're reading is true historical account. It really happens. Jesus Christ truly multiplied the loaves and the fish. He truly walked upon the water. And friends, before considering the, the message that these two miracles communicate to us, I want to consider just a couple of the specific details getting there. Now, last week, as Brian actually mentioned during the prayer time, we were talking about the beheading of John the Baptist, who was a relative of Jesus. And, and when Jesus got word of John the Baptist's beheading, that's actually where we start in verse 14 or verse 13. Jesus hears the news of John the Baptist's beheading, and he's clearly upset by it. So, what's it say? He wants to get away. He wants to mourn his friend, his relative, has just died. And that's actually what sets in motion this miracle. And, and verse he tries to get away, but verse 14 says, When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. He had compassion on them and healed the sick. He was actually trying to get away because he was mourning. He wanted some time. And what happens? The crowd shows up and they've got needs again. Church, human need is always inconvenient. And it's usually an interruption. But what do we see of Jesus? Friends, Jesus doesn't just begrudgingly minister to the crowd. It says that he had compassion. He had compassion on them. And I don't know about you, church, but that's not usually how I respond when someone has a need. Especially when I have other plans. You know, the other night, my son Samuel needed my help. And I was clearly exasperated with him. And as he and I headed out, he said to me, Dad, I'm sorry for inconveniencing you. I realized I was a total jerk. He needed my help. He genuinely needed my help. And there I was, irritated, and making him know how irritated I was because of the inconvenience to me and the interruption to my plans. I wasn't thinking about him and his need. I lacked compassion. Friends, how do you respond? How do you respond to people and their inconvenient, untimely needs? How do you respond, husbands, to your wife's needs? Wife, to your husband's needs? Parents, to your children and their needs? It is so easy. It's so easy for us to become irritated. To become irritated because needs are an inconvenience. They're an interruption. But friends, what we learn here is they're also an opportunity. They're also an opportunity. They're an opportunity for us to learn compassion. An opportunity for us to demonstrate the kingdom of love. An opportunity for Christ to love others in and through us. Will we welcome that opportunity? So after many hours, the story goes on and it tells us the crowd's grown large, the hour's grown late, the twelve suggest dismissing the crowd to get dinner and go home. And Jesus responds in verse 16, Jesus says, they need not go away, you give them something to eat. Now I don't know about you, I wish I could have been there. Because Jesus uses a lot of humor when he teaches if you read through the Gospels with an eye for it, friends, he uses humor all the time. And you wonder if he goes, hey, you give them something to eat. And they all start, oh, that's a good one, Jesus. That's a good one. We're going to give them something to eat. And they notice she wasn't laughing. Oh, oh, you were serious. Oh, you met us. Uh, oh, okay. And then they started to take inventory. You know, verse 17, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And they're probably doing the math in their head. They're going, okay, five loaves, two fish, 5,000 men. You know, Jesus, you may be the Son of God, but you're bad at math. You know, some of the other Gospel accounts make clear that the disciples went on to say financially, hey, Jesus, this is going to cost us thousands of dollars, which is, let me see, thousands of dollars more than we have. I have to wonder if Jesus kind of sighed at this point and was like, gosh, gosh, you're missing the point. And with minimal fanfare, Jesus takes this meager lunch. He blesses it. And Jesus has the disciples distribute it to the crowd. Not only does the crowd eat to satisfaction, friends, Matthew records there are 12 basketfuls left over. Jesus' power is more than adequate. Jesus' power is abundant. Jesus' power is more than adequate. It is abundant. His provision is lavish. He gives us more than we need. Friends, we do not serve a bare minimum God. God is lavish. He is abundant. He is generous. There was not just enough to feed the crowd that day. There were twelve basketfuls left over. And friends, could it be twelve basketfuls, twelve disciples, Now there's enough for the disciples to go forth and to take those to feed others. And that leads us to an important consideration. Friends, the 5,000 plus, it was probably far more than that because there was 5,000 men with women and children. The 5,000 plus benefited from this miracle. But friends, I believe the lesson was for the disciples. Many might have benefited, but the lesson was for the disciples because there were probably many in the crowd who ate that day. They ate the bread, ate their fill, but they had no idea where that bread had come from. It was the disciples who had a front row seat to the fullness of this miracle. They alone knew exactly how much they started with. They alone knew exactly how many were fed. They alone knew exactly how much was left over with. Many ate from this miracle, but it was really for the benefit of the disciples that they might see the power of Jesus. And church, I have to wonder. I have to wonder In verse 16, when Jesus tells the disciples to feed the crowd, what if they had tried? What if they had obeyed the command of Jesus to feed the crowd? What if in faith and obedience the disciples took those meager loaves and fish and they themselves prayed, broke the loaves, and distributed them? Friends, would it have been enough? I believe it would have been. Church, I believe that if the disciples had obeyed Jesus' command, Jesus through them would have fed the crowd that day. Because the command of Jesus comes with the capacity of Jesus. The command of Jesus comes with the power of Jesus. Jesus told the disciples to feed the crowd, and I believe that if they had obeyed His command, He would have given them the power, they would have discovered Jesus had given them the capacity to fulfill the very command that Jesus had given them. As the old adage goes, God does not call the equipped. He equips the called. Hear that again. God doesn't call those who are equipped. He equips those that He calls. Jesus said, feed them. And church, I believe that if they had obeyed, they would have found out they had the resources from Jesus to do exactly what He would commanded them to do. So church, how often? How often are you and I, how often are we together guilty of hearing Jesus say to us, church, go and feed the starving crowds with the Word of the Lord? And we, like Jesus' disciples, make lame excuses. Well, we don't have enough. I can't do it. I don't have enough. So friends, what if instead of trusting our power or looking at our provision, we trusted His power? What if instead of lamenting how inadequate our power was, we trusted the power of our lavish and generous God? Because friends, until we do, the crowd goes unfed. Church, the command of Jesus comes with the capacity from Jesus. And as we see here, God is lavish. He's generous. So are we going to respond, church, with obedience or with excuses? And after feeding the crowd, Jesus sends the disciples across the lake before Him. He retreats up a mountain to pray. And when Jesus is finished praying, Matthew, in a very matter-of-fact way, reports that Jesus went for an evening stroll. It just happened to be across the water. He went to catch up with his disciples. Verse 25, and in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came to them walking on the sea. Friends, the most sensational thing about this story is how unsensationally it's reported. It's like this was really nothing. He just went for a stroll on the sea, and there they were in the boat. It's the fourth watch of the night, which would be sometime between 3 and 6 a.m., and the disciples see Jesus walking on the water. They do their best Scooby-Doo impression. It's a ghost! And then they cry out in fear. And verse 27 tells us, But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And what does Peter do? Peter, ever the impulsive one. Peter, Peter responds, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. Hello, Peter. I don't know, but I mean, I understand it's kind of impossible to walk on water, humanly. And Peter says, command me, command me to walk on the water. And Jesus commanded him, come. And in faith, Peter obeyed. And Peter did the impossible. He walked on the water. Church, it was impossible for the disciples to feed the crowd that day. It was impossible for Peter to walk on the water that day. Oh, you have little faith. Why do you doubt? Oh, you have little faith. Why do you doubt? Do you see the connection? You know, we can't feed the crowd with our meager, inadequate resources. You know, we look at terrifying wind and waves and we can't walk on water. Friends, we listen to the command of Jesus, but do we trust in the power of Jesus? We hear the command of Jesus, but do we trust in the power of Jesus? Because even if our faith is little, His power is lavish. Even if our faith is little, His power is lavish. Church, do you believe that the command of Jesus Christ is enough? Do you believe that His command is enough? Do you and will you trust in His abundant power? And friends, before we conclude, I want to go back to Jesus' words when he first met his disciples in the water. They're terrified. And verse 27, Jesus says, immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And in the Greek, you might translate this quite literally as, take heart, I am, do not be afraid. Take heart, I am Now, on the surface, it sounds like Jesus is going, hey guys, don't freak out, it's just me. But Jesus is saying so much more. Because when God was going to rescue His people Israel from slavery in Egypt, He appeared to Moses in a burning bush. And Moses said, who am I going to tell them is rescuing them. Who am I going to tell them is the God who is sending me to rescue them from slavery? And in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, it reports, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And He said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God revealed Himself as Yahweh. I am. And here's Jesus walking across the sea. His disciples are afraid, He says, take heart, I am. Take heart, I am. Of course I can walk on the waves, I am. Of course I can feed the 5,000, because I am. Friends, Jesus is the great I Am. He's the God who created and sustains all things. He's the God who has mastery over all creation. Jesus is the great I Am. Come again to save His people. And friends, this is the Gospel. This is the good news. The Lord, the great I Am, who delivered His people from slavery in Egypt and then passed them through the divided waters of the Red Sea, now that God is walking on the waters of the sea to deliver His people. In the wilderness, according to Exodus 16, the Lord provided man a bread from heaven to feed his people. And now Jesus, the great I Am, has come to feed the crowds with five meager loaves and two fish. And there's plenty left over so that even more might now eat. Take heart, I Am. Do not be afraid. In fact, John records for us that after the miracle of the loaves and the fish, Jesus had an exchange with the crowd in John chapter 6, verses 31-35. through 35. The crowd says, Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it's written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but My Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Friends, of the gospel. The good news is that the great I am has come to feed us. That we might never hunger again. Greater than Moses who parted the sea, Jesus walks on the sea. Greater than Moses who provided bread that temporarily satisfied, Jesus is the bread of life who eternally satisfied. Church, these miracles point us to the gospel, the good news that Jesus is the bread of life. And He's abundantly more than enough for all who would feast. And church, that is what we are about to remember as we come here of the table. We remember that Jesus, the great I am, the bread of life is the maker of a new covenant, a new relationship between God and man. The Hebrew word for covenant is berith, which is likely derived from Hebrew, meaning to eat bread with, to eat bread with, because in the ancient Near East, covenants were made and relationships were formed around the table and the breaking of Bread. And so Jesus, the bread of the new covenant, the new relationship with God, the great I Am Himself, has come to walk on the water and deliver His people. He's the bread of life, lavish and abundant. Come that all who might can come and feast at the table of God. These two miracles reveal to us the power of Jesus. The question is, do we have faith in Jesus? Do we have faith in His power? The Gospel of Jesus. He's the bread of life. Come to establish a relationship through His broken body and His shed blood. And church, let this lead us. Let this this lead us to obedience. To greater faith. To follow Him. And to grateful praise as we come now to the table. And after the table, let this lead us to greater mission because, friends, those baskets of broken bread, they're for Jesus' followers to now take that bread out that others too might eat. And my friends, if you're here in person or online and you've never believed and trusted in Jesus, if you've never tasted before the bread of life, if you've never sat at the covenant table of restored relationship with God, what stops you? After the service, there will be people up front who would love to talk and to pray with you so that you too might be ready to come and to feast at the Lord's table to receive the bread of life that you might never hunger again. Will you come? Friends, let us come and let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you that Christ is the bread of life. And that we might come to him and never hunger again. Lord, feed us, strengthen us, and at the end of our time together, send us forth as your church, that this world too might be fed. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. If those who are serving communion,